Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books and Library Science podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael LaMagna, and today I'm joined by the author of Developing Authorship and Copyright Ownership Policies, Best Practices, published in 2024 by Roman and Littlefield. Often those in the scholarly communication ecosystem recognize the need for clear authorship and copyright ownership policies, or even revising existing policies to better reflect current best practices and understanding. An inclusive process will bring in a number of stakeholders who may or may not have expertise in this area, and having a clear understanding of the interconnected relationship between authorship, copyright ownership, and scholarly communication is needed. Joining me to discuss this book is author Allison Maurer, the scholarly communication and copyright librarian at the University of Utah Marriott Library. Welcome to the podcast, Allison. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm glad to be here. So before we begin uh, discussing your book, Developing Authorship and Copyright Ownership Policies, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your path into academic librarianship. Absolutely. It was a calling, really, I guess, my path into academic librarianship. It's been a wonderful career. I've been in the career in the field for 20 years now. I mean, growing up, I had books all over the house in my childhood home, and one of my favorites was Ferdinand the Bull. And I always wanted to be Ferdinand the Bull, you know, sitting under the cork tree quietly and just like watching everybody butting heads, basically. And, you know, other favorites were the Sneetches and Boxcar Children. You know, I wrote a story even as a ninth grader about a girl who had to climb a giant ladder to make it up into this nice, beautiful treehouse to sort of hang out by herself. So it sort of, you know, kind of was fortuitous that I entered the field of librarianship and ended up writing books basically about how to avoid butting heads. So, you know, (laughs) maybe I observe a lot of headbutting going on in the scholarly publishing and academic arena. And now here I am writing about it. I have degrees from Utah State University. I have an undergraduate degree in American Studies, and I have another master's degree in liberal arts, and that's from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. 
And then I have my master of library and information science, and that is from the University of Washington in Seattle. So I have always loved the field. I think I was called to be a librarian. I had an amazing, like, uh, Carnegie Library in the small town where I grew up in rural Utah, central rural Utah. Loved going to that Carnegie Library, creaky stairs and all, great smells, you know. So yeah, I always wanted to be a librarian, you know, 20 years now. And that's not even counting the libraries that I worked at during college. So it just, it was always very much my world, books and reading and curiosity and kind of this commitment to justice and through information access. So it's been a great, I don't know, a great opportunity, great discovery, kind of great way to sort of spend my career and spend my adult life. It's it's always great when you have a passion for your work and that you're able to bring that passion from an early age right on up to the current day. So that that's really great. So let me ask you, what sparked your interest in the topic of authorship rights and copyright ownership, and then more importantly, policies themselves? I know, it's like <laughs> such a crazy intersection. I never dreamed of it even myself. Uh, so I studied copyright in library school. I had a great course, like it wasn't just about copyright, it was just kind of about information policy in general at the University of Washington. And I remember the module on copyright and just like, having that basic understanding of like the rules and regulations around information creation and the production of information and distribution. So that was always kind of like there as an interest through library school. And then in this position that I'm in now, I'm the scholarly communication and copyright librarian. I, man, the questions that come in are just like constant and it, there's so little understanding and so little information, just basic information about how the system works. And then I also happen to be, I'm a former president of the Academic Senate at the University of Utah shared governance system. You know, many universities have them and including the U of U. We were actually one of the first institutions to have a shared governance system all the way back in 1915. There's a huge investigation actually that happened at the U of U and I studied that history wrote that history actually. So I kind of knew sort of where like the whole concepts of academic freedom were coming from and how they sort of work within institutions of higher learning. And then at the same time, you know, acting as this librarian who's providing, whose job it is to provide this information and clarity to people who have these questions and then seeing the disputes that come up the disagreements, I think, based on the confusion, you know, like, am I an author? Should I add this person as an author? Why didn't I get added as an author? My rights were violated here. I wrote this portion. Why am I not on this paper? I came up with the idea. Why am I, you know, or why am I on this paper? I had nothing to do with this paper. Like, what, what am I doing here? Like somebody, I don't know how, to, you know, the disagreements just kind of, that's like the headbutting seems to be like, kind of never ending within academia. So I sort of witnessed that as Senate president, but then also as a librarian. So it just became really clear that like having really good, not confusing, like plain language policies and plans, you know, it's like not everybody likes to create a plan, but man, having one really forestalls, like sort of preempts a lot of the disagreements and disputes and headbutting that can happen 
down the road and a lot of dysfunction that can happen down the road. So I felt like having a book that was, I mean, it's kind of about librarianship in a way, but it really is meant for the whole field of like the whole scholarly communication system. And it's a big system you know, publishers and institutions and research institutes and government and, you know, then the researchers themselves and the graduate students and undergraduate students that they work with and and then all the rules within an institution. So it's a really big and complex system. And it I kind of wanted something out there that people could easily grab onto and digest and implement within their world, no matter what their world is, either as a researcher or as an administrator, or as a publisher, or as a librarian. Well, I will say this before we jump into the 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 bulk of your book: you absolutely accomplished that goal because your work is applicable to anybody in the library space. But it serves as a great foundation for anybody in the scholarly communication ecosystem, any committee or work group member that's creating an authorship or a copyright ownership policy you know, to have that foundational knowledge to inform that work. And, you know, you begin your work with some foundational information, which is great for anyone embarking on creating, you know, a copyright and authorship policy. But, you know, one of those big questions I'm sure you often get and that are often asked by authors working at any institution of higher education is who owns the copyright for their scholarship, right? And, yeah. and so what would you tell them? Uh, it's such a great question. And I would tell them, go look at your institution's policy. <laughs> yes. And you got to just read it. And then, but you got to kind of know like what you're looking for and what the basics are. And it's just so important to kind of know what rights you do have when you're a creator. And I think sometimes it's so easy for people to forget that they have a lot of rights when they are that original creator. So yeah, definitely go and read your institution's policy to figure out like how the Federal Copyright Act has been interpreted for your institution. But I would say even before going to read it, like coming with that foundational knowledge so that you know what the terms are like like how they're getting interpreted like is your policy giving faculty ownership is there a carve out for faculty like do you know what that means like what does a carve out mean like what does work for hire mean and what you know what is like what's kind of the core set of rights that are sort of engaged in these questions of work for hire and ownership. So just kind of knowing how the statute is itself set up will really help you know what, you know, what you go and read the policy, what it's actually saying and what it actually means. And I mean, I would say if you're like, well, how do I find out about what the Copyright Act says, you know, go and talk, go find your copyright librarian, go find your scholarly communication librarian at your institution. And that is what that person is there for, to kind of help you know those landscape realities and help you get information and help you learn and help you stay educated. So yeah, if you're like, I don't know how to get the foundation, even just to go read the policy, I would say definitely go seek out a librarian at your institution to kind of help you through that, guide you through that process. Oh, absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. You always want to go and consult your librarian, especially when you're dealing with copyright and intellectual property issues. So you argue 
that academic authorship consists of three components. So what are those components and how do they inform how authorship relates to scholarly communication? I love this question. Thanks for asking this question. <laughs> I wanted to come up with like basically a theory of academic authorship. I think because, you know, when you go institution by institution, there is so much confusion. I sort of felt like having that more theoretical approach would help people navigate no matter what institution they're at, just know the basics. Like I just, you know, you you enter a place, a workplace, wherever it might be, a place of learning, and you just kind of know like, yeah, okay, this is like my reality as an author. And so like the very first component that I think is pretty important is knowing what it means, and it's related to your first question, what it means to be an author who is also an employee so that's like one piece, like there's independent authors out there who maybe are not like employed, like at an institution, they're more independent, they're more contract based. So like their reality is going to be a little bit different. But when you are you know, a direct employee of an institution, kind of thinking of yourself that way, and but also remembering that you're an author at the same time. So author as employee is kind of one piece of academic authorship. And then another big piece is that role of an academic author in creating that original expression. So that by that, I just, I mean, kind of that core job of an author that an author creates meaning, like an author does sense making, like an author observes and like, especially an ac academic author does like that inquiry work. And that in itself, that's an authorship practice. And you, as you do your inquiry, then you, you're kind of creating that understanding for yourself. And then you're communicating that understanding to your peers, like initially, like to other academics, like, I mean, sometimes we sort of get, it gets confusing when you're thinking, oh, I have to communicate this to the public, which is a different audience than communicating it initially to your peers, because then you are kind of creating that, the conditions for like fellow critique. Mm -hmm. And that, that is super important for academic authors. Like that's mm -hmm. the whole purpose of the system is that yeah. we all are kind of critiquing each other and sort of figuring out, okay, what is this inquiry that this person came up with? And is the inquiry sound? Like how did this person kind of come up with the inquiry? And then that's kind of getting judged basically, you know, through the peer review and scholarly communication system. So that's a, a kind of major component of academic authorship is the scholarly critique of an original expression. And then like, yes, you're an employee, so that's important to consider, but you're also the scholar who's kind of involved in this dialogue. And then because our day-to-day -day reality in life as an employee is that what the academic or, you know, bigger institution sort of values is going to really influence what you do as well. So if the institution kind of values very highly academic freedom, or values very highly like that, that original investigation, then that's going to, their policies are going to basically kind of set the conditions 
for, for their employees to be motivated to continue that high level of investigation. So this is why your other question was also so great because if you, yeah, it's like knowing the copyright ownership is important as an employee, but knowing the bigger set of policies that are motivating inquiry at the institution is going to, that's going to affect your day to day. Like, is this what the institution expects of me is to go and use my individual creativity and problem solving and inquiry skills to like engage in this bigger conversation? Yeah, what an excellent point. And so you've you brought up terms like work for hire. You, you discussed the faculty carve out. I was wondering if you could touch on those points a little bit. Yeah. I mean, so work for hire is like a term within the copyright statute. Like there's the the way that copyright statute is sort of set up, like the US copyright statute, is it doesn't take much to be a copyright holder, which is like a beautiful thing. You know, it's like you have an idea in your own mind. And then it kind of comes from your mind and gets fixed into something like, you know, the piece of paper that's here on my desk or like a canvas, like an art canvas or like a piece of clay and may, you make that sculpture, you know, like that sort of happens automatically. And like at that moment that you've expressed that idea and fixed it, you are this rights holder. And like, again, that's just like such a beautiful thing. It's just automatic and you don't have to do a lot of, go through a lot of hoops. What happens when that kind of create, the creativity process happens in a workplace is who owns that at that moment it gets fixed is going to depend on this, you know, your employment status essentially. And that's the work for hire. So, you know, I work for the University of Utah. I am hired to be a librarian here. I am a tenured faculty member. My expectation is to produce works of scholarship, new works of authorship. So like I, that's what I'm getting paid to do. And if there was not a carve out in the policy here at the University of Utah for faculty, the institution would own what I create because that's how the copyright statute is set up when it comes to employment. So then, yeah, the institution owns stuff if you don't have that carve out. So that's the kind of motivating structure that you look for. The work for hire, yeah, it's like you lose, you kind of lose your rights basically as that individual creator, even though it's got that beauty to it in terms of like the system being kind of automatic, like once you enter that employment scenario, then the work for hire really becomes kind of the big definer as a term. Yeah. And it's a great point to talk about the faculty carve out because in most cases, administrators and staff members don't have that, that it does fall under work for hire for them. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And that can be so confusing to navigate. So the carve out that you're always looking for when you go and read your institution's copyright ownership policy is a carve out for a category of employee so just like you said, it's like there's category of faculty, there's category of staff, there's category of administrator, usually typically, or like student employee can also be another category, but you're looking for the category of faculty. And then you're, you're also really kind of trying to pay close attention to the types of material that the carve out is allowing for. So some, and the, the policies in the book, kind of the sample policies use different wording, but 
by kind of just common phrase that is maybe to look for, to watch for is like a traditional scholarly work. <laughs> so it's like, you're looking at, okay, so yeah, here's the carve out for faculty as an employment category. Okay. Yes. I see that the institution is like not considering those work for hire. They're transferring some rights back to faculty employees. And then for, for that category, for faculty, they are also kind of giving this really additional clear call out for what I might create as a faculty member in terms of a traditional scholarly work. So, and that the list is actually kind of long. I mean, so it could be anything from like a book to like a database to like a like curriculum, like your syllabus or the course that you create, or like a journal article or a report, or, you know, it's like, there's all kinds of scholar, traditional scholarly works. So kind of having that clear understanding too of like, yeah, what am I going to create as a scholar? And that can kind of itself be its own definition of like what a traditional scholarly work is. But I think you just, you want to make sure that like the carve out is kind of matching what it is that the faculty are then producing. That's such a great point. And so I know that you're focusing in on policy creation. And so as you think about committee or work group membership, how should an institution or organization decide who to invite to participate? And how do you ensure you have a diverse perspective and an inclusive process? Yeah. Oh, it's so important. I mean, that's the kind of the crux of the book is that there's definitely been like a lack of inclusion within academia kind of historically. And even presently, it's like a struggle, an ongoing struggle for most academic institutions. So I think you, if you are at, at the point and in the position of like, yeah, this institution needs kind of some more clarity on this question. And if you are in the position to create those policies, I think kind of arming yourself with the, that little bit of history so that you know, okay, like historically, this institution where I have worked women have not been allowed to be employed or they were not employed for some time or minoritized populations, people of color were not employed here for a certain amount of time, like maybe for the institution's first hundred years or 50 years, whatever it might be. Like that's the situation at the University of Utah. Like it was a predominantly white male institution, you know, from, from the get-go in 1850 started by a religious group, but with the intention of it being open to everybody, it didn't necessarily start open to everybody kind of based on the, the demographics of the religious group. So yeah, it's like kind of, you just kind of have to know your bigger history. And then once you kind of know that reality of your bigger history, I think that can really inform the group that you create to then write up these policies and kind of come up with these plans. So like, I mean, just really simply, like if I'm the convener of that group that's going to write the policy and if maybe my demographics sort of match the history of the institution's demographics, maybe I should think a little bit beyond just my own identity in that situation. Oh, maybe I need someone who has a different ethnic background than I do. Or maybe I need someone on the group who has a different gender perspective than I do who has a different expression of gender or a different sexual orientation than I do. Somebody who maybe speaks a language that I don't speak, like someone who's come from a different part of the world that doesn't represent my, my own background. 
like, you know, it's like you kind of have to do your own check that way yeah. so that then you have the group who is then writing the policy is you're getting information from all perspectives so that then the policy itself can be a fair and equitable policy. So, and then for this one, like for copyright ownership and for authorship, like it's so important to have like the voice of faculty, like obviously, you know, I mean, you need the expertise, like in addition to like the, the diversity of the demographic makeup of the committee, like you also just need expertise. So like who it's like, do you have enough faculty representation that you have a good sense of the types of works that faculty are currently creating at your institution? Like, do you have 10 staff members on the committee or do you have 10 faculty? You know, it's like kind of understanding just that makeup as well. And then having great, great like legal perspective as well like how does the copyright statute work in the united states like who knows who at our institution knows these laws oh wait i know like the attorneys might know a little bit about the copyright act okay do i have any attorneys on the committee and like do i have that level of expertise too yeah and so you discuss students as authors and so i'm wondering should students participate in this process Oh, absolutely. I think so. I mean, it's hard because student schedules are so challenging when it comes to like writing policies. So I would, I mean, for a big policy or a campus-wide, like institution-wide policy, I think it might be kind of hard to have student voice there. But if like I'm a research, if I'm a researcher putting a research group together and then creating like an authorship plan for that group, Almost definitely, like especially if my research group involves like students in any kind of way, then I think having them in the room to sort of create that plan together, that is it's absolutely important. I mean, because that is where the headbutting and the disagreements happen, you know, because students have as many rights as faculty members have when it comes to this like ownership and clarity around authorship and then the distribution of the work. And it's sometimes hard for faculty to remove, it's, it's the motivation structure of the institution does not allow faculty to always remember that. You know, it's like we got the rank hierarchy going on and sometimes that sort of will supersede like remembering, oh, wait, wait a minute, like students actually have the same level of rights here as like co-owners and joint authors on this work. So yeah, like I think leaving students out of an authorship plan would kind of set yourself up for failure and including them right up front would be really important. And and you made that point earlier, right? This is all to to avoid those conflicts as students are contributing to, to the authorship process, the scholarship, and then it comes time for publication and they want they want the acknowledgement as well. So absolutely. That's right. So what are some basic information that should be included in any uh, authorship or copyright ownership policy? I have a little outline <laughs> that's in the book that will hopefully give people some good guidance on what to include. And it's not super complicated. It's got maybe seven pieces to it. So, and this is basic for like kind of any type of policy that you might want to create. It might feel a little bit formal or maybe a little got some too much structure to it, but it can just be a basic guide. So I would definitely start with like what the name of the policy is. 
And even if it's just like a plan, like a local, like lab-based research group-based plan, it's always okay to just come up with a basic name because everybody needs to know that it exists and that it's out there and what it's called. So even if it's just like, you know, the La, the La Magna Research Group authorship plan, that would be a lovely name and people would have a great way of referring to that. So start with a name and then kind of think about your scope and your purpose. So if it's like a big institution-wide or like, you know, if you're a research institute, um, like if it's covering a lot of people, your scope's going to be, that's really big. So you, you have to kind of think about the whole institution if you're kind of doing like a full policy. If you're doing a research group plan, like your scope is not going to be quite as big, but you you would have, a, there would be a very clear purpose for having the plan. And the plan would be to define who will be an author on the papers that the La Magna research group creates. Like that would be the scope and the purpose. And then just some basic definitions like, okay, you know, if you're doing campus wide, yeah, you would want to define work for hire for sure. Right. You would want to define that carve out. Like it's like you'd have to, you know, define what faculty is, define what staff is, define what student employees are. So if you're just doing a research group plan, like just basic definitions of like, well, what is an author? Like that would be a lovely definition to have in a research group plan, like so that everybody's on the same page. And then what the policy is itself, that should be its own section. And for a research group, like the policy itself might be to be an author on a paper from this research group, you have to have written a portion of the paper. And that's the policy. Like if you don't write a portion of the paper, then you're not an author. Like it's super clear. It could even be like one line, two lines, like, you know, not anything really comprehensive. Campus-wide, of course, it would be like you'd have a lot of components to that policy section. And then again, for campus-wide, like if there's any exceptions to the overall policy, like you'd want to build that in. I think for research groups, you might need some exceptions, but I one possible exception would be like, you know, if the principal investigator who came up with the line of inquiry doesn't write a portion of the paper she or he could or they could still be an author because they came up with that original line of inquiry or something that could be a potential exception. And then if it's, you know, institution wide kind of policy, you'd want to have a section that points out to other related policies. So like the sample policies in the book, you know, there's there's sometimes a standalone authorship policy and then its own a standalone copyright ownership policy. So like together, like referring to the two, like within both of them, you would want to make those connections with references. And then lastly, the final section would be like a contact, who's the point person basically for this policy? Is it for a research group? Is it the basically the lead faculty member? Then you'd put that person's name and contact information for the institution. Is it an administrator and which administrator? Allison, I really love how clear and concise your, your suggestions are because oftentimes these policies have an abundance of legalese in them. And so any suggestions on how to avoid that? Oh, I know the legalese can really turn people off from policies. I mean, I think it's just remembering that it's, we're all in a system made up of people, you know, scholarly communication and academia is made up of people and people with like different levels of expertise and experience so the more yeah the more you can make up just straightforward plain english 
the better. I mean, I know it's hard with like copyright ownership policies because you have to pull so much from the statute. But I I think, and this will depend like on that, again, on the diversity of the research group or the policy group that you put together. Like if you've got good attorneys on your on your working group and you have like a lot of faculty, then I think together, like his faculty will kind of understand it differently than maybe the attorneys do. So then maybe together, like kind of collaboratively, you can kind of sort of come up with that plain language verbiage and make it less legalese. I mean, I think it's sometimes easy just to pass everything off to the attorneys to sort of do and deal with. And like, they're wonderful colleagues, you know, but yeah, it's like without the non-attorneys in the room, then it can easily kind of just spill over into state code or federal code language, which, yeah, it's hard for everyone to understand that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let me ask you this. How can these policies facilitate and encourage emerging scholarly voices and, and diversity into, you know, academic scholarship and scholarly communication. Right. Yeah. That again, it's just like the point of the book, the kind of the crux, like there were a couple of just really bad policies that I found <laughs> and read. And like one of them was from a research group that said that, Basically, if you want to be an author, um, you know, on a paper from this group, you have to go above and beyond. Wow. Yeah, and I <laughs> so I read that and I was like, wow, yeah, that's very kind of disinviting. You know, like I wouldn't, I would not feel like that would be a welcome or generative space yeah. to be in. It would feel like oh my gosh, I'm going to have to work until midnight basically and come up with some grand thing if I even want to kind of, you know, be able to grace the presence of whoever is running this research group. So I, I think, I don't know, I think kind of taking a step back, if you are a convener, like if you are the person kind of putting a group together, like maybe take a step back and think about what you know what you are presenting and and how you yourself are kind of creating that sense of belonging for anybody and everybody so what i mean what you say about like a policy or a plan is going to really be a signal for people and kind of related to your the other question from the beginning like kind of if you if you know a little bit about the history of the institution where you're located and its level of exclusion, just knowing that little bit of history and then, and but just having that basic understanding of how academia in America just at large has kind of been exclusionary, just knowing that and starting there and knowing that you kind of have to counter that not the whole history, of course, like nobody can counter the whole history, but like just kind of coming to terms with that fact mm -hmm. and putting yourself in the position of the people who have been excluded and then thinking through, yeah, if I was in that position, what would I need to feel like I belonged here and that I was welcome here? And then you kind of design your research group and your institution and its policies kind of around that larger goal.
What a, what a great approach. And, and so you've mentioned the sample policies that are in your book, and it really is helpful to have those sample policies there because, you know, the first step in any kind of working group or committee is to what go out and Google examples. Yep. So you've actually done a lot of that work for us. So how did you decide on the sample policies that you included in the book? Because I know there that just as much attention goes into what to not include as to well to what include. And so did you have specific criteria? Were you looking for diversity in the policies that were there or were there other factors? Yeah, definitely diversity of policies and ones that were good, like ones that you would want to emulate, basically. So yeah, I read a lot and some of them were a little overly confusing. So those I would kind of leave to the side. And then, yeah, the ones I chose, I, I did kind of try to have diversity between like types of institutions. So like, because it's kind of meant to address the whole system, like for the audience to be the whole system, like having policies from higher ed institutions, but then also from publishers too. And like publishers that were really kind of demonstrating this goal of equity and like this goal of fairness, like that was really important to me. Like, you know, ones where they had kind of thought about the difference between a publication policy and an authorship policy, like that I thought was kind of important to sort of highlight. And then to kind of also show like, you know, corporate publishers might come at it a little bit different differently than like society publishers mm -hmm. or types of venues. So I was kind of trying to go at it from that level of diversity. And then, yeah, just different type of research institutions like University of Texas is in there and it's such a huge system and so focused on like, you know, commercialization of these works of authorship. So I thought that might be a good one to draw from. Um, and then smaller institutions like University of Toledo is in there. It's such a strong policy and it was like brand new. So I thought that would be kind of helpful just to have like a very recent policy and sort of show like it's a, it's a very doable approach. And I just thought it was excellent. So that is in there. And then I, re I just really loved the University of Chicago Press's policy too, just overall, like they kind of help show that distinction between, you know, publication and authorship and they're, and they were very author friendly. Like there's, you know, a lot of publishers out there that kind of sort of like how academic institutions sometimes forget about students. It's like publishers <laughs> sometimes forget about their authors, you know, how like authors, there's so many and there's just so many perspectives. And, but that's like kind of the focus are the authors and University of Chicago Press, I thought did a really nice job keeping it focused on the authors and having their policies help answer questions that authors very typically and commonly have. Like it was, it was very author focused. And it, it was really great that you included the publisher policies in there as well. That really added some value to this. Now, were there any policies that you wanted to include it, but didn't for some reason? Well, the one, the really bad policy, <laughs> the one I, I did not include that one. I felt like I didn't want to make anybody feel bad, you know? <laughs> So I didn't want to like name names or I didn't want to be like, and don't do this. You know, I just, <laughs> I kind of mentioned it a little bit kind of in the prose of that, of one of the intros to one of the chapters. So I was kind of hoping people would be aware of it and maybe aware of what not to do, but I didn't really want to like bring super high level attention to it <laughs> and sort of say where I found it and all of that. So, yeah, but I, I had I had kind of wanted to include it, but then thought, yeah, that might not be the most fair thing to do. 
So given your experience on the Faculty Senate and uh, the nature of our conversation, I, I have to bring up retention, promotion, and tenure into this. So how does that fit into this policy development? Yeah, I mean, that's the motivating structure behind the whole theory of academic authorship. Like, I mean, the employment expectations are always going to drive what people do. And the decentralized nature of RPT at most institutions is like both like a blessing and a curse. You know, it's a good thing that like the locals kind of get to decide what is quality, but it's also so confusing about whose decision it actually is. So RPT, it's just, it's such a systemic thing, like across the whole industry, I think kind of knowing you know, where the decisions happen and based on what policies, like that's so important to know as an employee. And then it's so important to just know those nuances. If you are ever in a position of writing these campus-wide, campus-based policies or institution-wide policies, like I think if you don't, if let's say you're a non-faculty member writing the policy and you don't have a good understanding of retention and promotion and tenure, then the policy that you create is just it's just not going to be effective. It's not going to account for how that system works on the ground. And if I think if the policies don't match like that bigger motivating structure of the institution, I mean, then I think the whole system, that's where so much of the confusion comes from, because it's like, well, which policy do I follow? Do I follow these standards of employment that are right here in front of me that define my employment? Or do I follow this kind of poorly written, ill-defined, bigger policy that applies to everybody, you know, which one, like which one counts and which one is going to influence what I create and what I make and what happens with the works I create. Like they, it's so unfortunate that sometimes those two things are sort of in tension with each other when they really should be so closely tied in communication with each other. And as you said at the beginning, right, this is all about avoiding that tension and conflict that exists. So what a, what a great point. So Allison, I know we've taken up a lot of your time. And as we wrap up our time together, I was wondering, what are you working on now? Are you continue to explore issues of authorship and copyright ownership? Or are you heading in a new direction with your research? Oh, no, this is my world. And I'm sticking <laughs> in this world. I really love it. I love the connection between like information access and like reading, like what you consume and authorship. I just think the three go together. Like what you have access to, what you read is kind of influences what you produce. So I have a reading census for Utah that I have developed and that's kind of wrapping up. I'm getting ready to publish the results of that research and spoiler alert on that. Utahns love to read email. That's what we found. It was like, <laughs> cracks me up, you know? I think they like novels too, but they're like, yeah, I read email every day. I mean, I'm, I know everybody does, but that was just like, they're like, yes, I love emails, you know? So I was like, okay, it's good to know. Like maybe we need to broaden people's horizons a little <laughs> bit here so that we can produce other great works of authorship besides email. So definitely that's in my world. And I, I want to create like a, I'm working on a giant exhibit like a giant human-sized book that you can kind of travel through and know the whole process of basically research and the ethics of research and the ethics of authorship. That by the time like you travel through the book, 
that then you get to the point where you can maybe create a book. Oh, wow. That sounds like such a great project. It yeah, really does. Ho hopefully you'll, you'll travel with that throughout the country. So I, everybody I can experience it. Yeah. I hope. Yes, that is the goal. And it's just getting started now, but I think that's kind of the goal. And I even envision maybe like, if you can't quite travel through the book, maybe you could turn like giant pages and then you can kind of see some basic concepts as you turn these giant human sites pages. Oh, wow. That, that, that is so great. That interactive component is so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. I just, I love this. Yeah. The combination of these three kind of conceptual areas. And then I started an online store. So if people are looking for kind of fun stuff that sort of really reflects that you understand authorship, it's at authorship.ink, I-N-K, and it's great just swag it's like stickers and an apron and a notebook and it just kind of gives those concepts of you know you can't ghost authors no ghosting you can't gift authorship no gifting and you can't confer it on machines either it's for humans only so like the stickers just kind of reflect those basic concepts you could you know put it on your mug or have it available somewhere in your lab or in your research group and then you know hopefully everybody in a fun way can know how authorship works oh that's really great well allison i really want to thank you for your time today this was an excellent conversation about your book and i and i really enjoyed it and so i'm your host michael Magna, and thank you for listening to the new books in library science podcast channel on the new books network <laughs>